Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face.
Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by two very special guests here today, uh, all the way from Pittsburgh. And we're going to hear a little bit about that city, probably, I would think. Uh, but more importantly, we're going to talk about Adventures in Memory, a new book by Hilda and Ilva Ostby, uh, both joining us here today uh, live uh, on Skype. Uh, welcome and thank you for your time today to, to, to the two of you. Thank you for, for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So, The Science and Secrets of Remembering and Forgetting is the subtitle, uh, Adventures in Memory. Um, where, where, you, you guys, why don't you lead the conversation here a little bit? Tell me where we should begin. Do we begin with the sea monster? Where, where do we start? Yeah, we can begin with the sea monster or the hippocampus, as it's called, uh, uh, which we focus on and which is portrayed as a seahorse on the cover of our book because... The hippocampus is a very vital part uh, for memory formation in the brain. And what? And, and it, it just it, it, the seahorse. So it just it looks like a seahorse. It's got it's the shape of a seahorse. Is it? Does it, is the metaphor yeah. go any deeper than that? No, it was kind of uh, it was uh, discovered by a guy in Bologna in 1564. Julius Caesar Aranzi, he was called, and he found this structure in the brain that he thought looked a little, little bit like a sea monster, which could look like anything in those days. But afterwards, it's uh, been called uh, <laughs> the hippocampus name has gone over to the seahorse. So it's kind of a seahorse structure. And they didn't know anything about it until in 1953, when a guy called Henry, Henry Mollison. Mollison, which I never remember how to pronounce. Mm. He was operated on and he lost both of his uh, hippocampi. And uh, it's like the kidneys. You can take one and you can uh, have a totally similar life almost. But uh, if you take both, then mm. it, it affects you deeply. So it affected him deeply to lose both of his hippocampi and so he yeah. lost the ability to form new memories forever yeah well, and uh, and uh, henry was uh, participating in a lot of memory studies so that's why uh, he got kind of famous in the history of neuroscience uh, initially known only as hm um, by his initials, but after his death in 2008, his full identity was disclosed and uh, he kind of got the honor that he deserved right. for showing the rest of us how important the hippocampus is for for uh, laying down memories. Of course, he didn't remember any of the things he did for science. Yeah. Which is, which is so comically ironic and tragic in its own way. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so before we go deeper into that, because I do want to talk about HM, as, as you have now affectionately referred to him as, uh, yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about your story, your sisters, uh, one of you, the history of ideas. You're, is that right? So somebody has a master's degree in that or a PhD in that? Yeah. That's amazing. No, a master's degree. I was working with uh, Shakespeare and the Tempest and uh, the Tempest and the no, kind of ideas on uh, alchemy. Uh, at the time and at the time uh, the art of memory was one of the dark arts and related to alchemy and one of the uh, kind of most famous alchemists of the time Robert Flood was writing a book about the art of memory so many people believe that Shakespeare was in, influenced by these ideas and 
of course that comes into his play The Tempest where an alchemist is the main character but uh, later on many years later that uh, came into play when we started writing this book about memory why yeah, why it's like us to think of memory as gold you know like the alchemists hmm. were trying to be gold but memory is also like a precious thing what why was it considered uh, you say dark arts why was it sort of considered was it sort of this myst- mysterious edge to it or mad, mm. mad i mean alchemy too was very connected to magic really wasn't yeah, it yeah, in, in many respects yeah, yeah. right so so yeah. yeah can you talk a little bit about that dark art like edge uh it was uh, of course because of the magic of things appearing in the mind Right. And Robert Flood compared the memory to uh, the scene in a theater, in a, uh, in a theater building, and many believes that the globe, which was Shakespeare's theater, was built as a memory machine uh, based on Robert Flood's principles of how memory hmm. works. So we were there in the book, we write about that and how you could see the whole kind of zodiac in the ceiling on the on stage actually the the actors could see the zodiac in the ceiling and they could use that as a memotechnic which is the same as a, me- a memory palace we talk about that too in the book but memory palace is from uh, ancient time from antiquity they learned speeches like that they learned it as a kind of traveling in a house or just on a road and then you place all your points along those points kind of Hmm. along those highlights on that route and then you can pick up the points as you speak so that is maybe what happened in Shakespeare's theater as well that the actor would place all of their you know everything they needed to remember they would place it along the zodiac which is uh, 12 signs so then you can take that 12 highlights of the play and just try and remember it uh, connected to the zodiac right, as right. a mem- memory tool. Well, what's so interesting to me about that is the the unknown of the stars, the unknown of what lights beyond, and yet the memory very much the same in a way, isn't it? Isn't it kind of interesting mm, yeah, that, that exactly. the metaphor, there's so many similarities between that. In fact, I think near the end of the book, and I'm not quite finished. And by the way, congratulations on a, on a wonderful read and a great book. And I hope, I hope everybody reads it. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating read on, on so many levels. Um, uh, so, so let's talk a little bit more about this mystery. Neuropsychology and literature come together. Uh, you're sisters, but, but you're also clearly, uh, you've approached this from a, a historical and an academic perspective as well. So it's a really nice mix. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which which sister goes first? Yeah, I'm the neuropsychologist. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, I, first I have to say that after studying memory from a kind of this neuropsychological, neuroscientific perspective for many, many years, uh, I have learned so much more while reading this book and uh, kind of embracing this wide perspective on memory. Hmm. Uh, so just acknowledging that memory is about everything from the from the molecular level and up to society and history 
uh, and literature. And I think that is, uh, yes, very interesting. So, uh, yeah, so we combine forces uh, in that um, we explore these uh, the scientific issues of memory and we do so also through literary storytelling uh, because uh, as my sister is a, is a writer and author, she she has all these good tricks up her sleeve and her artistic uh, background uh, to make this happen and make it come more alive. Uh, yeah. So trying to try. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of we always did the same thing. I realized that I studied history, and history is our collective memories. That is very very unique unique to humankind that we collect our memories together and make stories out of them and share them and share them with generations after us that is uh, something that other species don't do as we know mm. as far as we know mm. uh, that we tell the stories again and again and now we know what happened in Mesopotamia 2500 years ago that is amazing and uh, also kind of as a writer, I suddenly realized that all the tools I have as a writer is just the right of memory, or how the memory works. That uh, it's just an echo of how hmm. the brain is structuring our memories. You know, it's that is how we tell stories. <laughs> it's it's amazing. I love I love the link between collective memories and storytelling. So as um, so 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 Ilva, as a neuropsychologist, is it important for you? for memories to be accurate, for me to remember well. I would think as a storyteller, it's not as important. But you're, yeah. the, sci- you're the scientist, right? Two plus two equals four, right? So, so well, you tell, you, you, do you know where I'm going with that? Uh, well, uh, actually, memories are not that reliable anyway. So <laughs> right. the, well, we hope that the science about memory is reliable, but the memories themselves are highly unreliable. And that is because they are reconstructions. Mm. So they are partly based on actual memory traces in the brain. You know, these physical changes that take place between uh, neurons when they strengthen the synapses, uh, which is what happens on the uh, on a cellular level when you learn something. Uh, but the memory is so much more than just a replay of those uh, memory traces. So when we reconstruct a memory, we kind of also enter into our imagination Mm -hmm. and fill in the gaps and make it a kind of fluid experience, even though we don't get to keep all the details of a memory. Our memories is like the Shakespearean theater, where every performance is a little bit different. And uh, the hippocampus is the director and he's a really (laughs) bad director too, because it's kind of everything can happen. People are stumbling into stage in the wrong underwear uh, <laughs> and just uh, say the wrong lines, and it's not the not what happened. It's uh, yeah, it's a really yeah. bad reenactment, I would say, so, all the time. <laughs> so, so how does that? So how does that imp- and and we've got and you talk about it in the book as well this idea of false memory and I remember twenty or thirty years ago that was that was very big uh, um, it was being used in some circles as a almost um, almost as a cop out as an excuse as a as a oh well I rem- you know what I mean like I remember it this way well so I just wonder how 
how our identities are connected to our memory. And I, 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 I think of what if, you know, you did an experiment with me, which you couldn't do, I suppose, but we went back in time. We can try it. We can try it. We can try it. We can try it. Yes. And you went back in time. Unscientific experiment. That's right. And not, yes, yes. This is, this is the stuff of science fiction, I think, but maybe not. You tell me different here, but slowly erase my memories Yes. And, and don't you slowly erase the person that I am? So, so oh, at, no. Right, let's tell so, me. Let's so, tell talk to story. me about that. Talk to yeah, me about yeah. my identity and yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and and I think we before the recorder was on, we already shared kind of a love for the film Blade Runner. I mean, memories make us human, right? Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Let me tell you this. Uh, let me tell you the story of Arna. I have to tell the story of the Arna first, and then the yeah. Arna hear. is a Norwegian name. Yeah. Arna is a Norwegian <laughs> name, and he's my friend, and he uh, is a very successful person. He he has written two books now, and he's uh, participated in several albums by a very famous rock group in Norway. Toured all over the world, got awards for everything. And um, he is married with two children. Mm -hmm. And when he knew that I was writing a book about memory, he said, uh, is it normal, Hilda? I just want to know, is it normal to not remember anything about my past, my, my childhood and youth? And I said, yeah, yeah, you know, childhood amnesia, because we all can't remember, or, uh, you know, being born and right. years after luckily so that's normal up to the age of seven but he said no 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 it's not about that i don't remember anything hmm. and then we interviewed him in this book and he can't remember his first kiss or how his vacations were and he don't have any vivid memories like right. we always talk about memories as this kind of movie in our head uh, but he, of course, knows that it happened. He has this kind of uh, right. what we call semantic memory, sure. the kind of the story. But he don't have this reenactment in his head about it. And it goes back kind of 10 years in his life. So after 10 years, things start to fade for him. Actually, on this tour, we met this woman. Mm. And she said she couldn't remember anything vividly like we were talking about in our talk. It was in another city in Canada and she said but uh, you know I don't remember those things but I but I, I know that it happened and uh, and yeah. I got the pictures and right. I kind of remember the pictures and it really made me uh, sure that and also this science no, uh, shows that what you test when you test a person's personality isn't what they remember of their lives because yeah. You know, that would be a very strange personality test. What you test is how you react to the world, how mm. you respond, how you process things, but not how much you remember because everyone remembers differently and we have a different set of stories. It's very individual, mm. actually. And, also, and, you can be, uh, and you can be very happy and don't remember anything. Yeah, and, and uh, while reading Suzanne Corkin's book about HM, uh, it kind of struck me how... Uh, how HM with his profound anterograde amnesia um, he was kind of lost in the here and now in the moment but he still had a personality and a sense of self and a sense of identity even though he had to look in the mirror to know that he had aged mm. uh, so it's yeah. the frontal lobes that makes the well, personality change isn't it 
Well, personality is made up of many different brain systems together with our experience with the world. Because it's a mystery. But one thing that would really change your personality is... Yeah, so the personality, how you act and how you react, etc. is, of course, mostly impacted by frontal lobe damage. If if you would kind of... So what about... You wouldn't get that many friends. With a, a, no, no, or no, it no. would be difficult. No, no, we can't say that because a lot of people have frontal lobe damage yeah. and, and we can't say that they don't have <laughs> friends. That's cruel. But right, it's, it's, right. You, it's may not, kind of, you may not have friends, yes. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it may be difficult like with impulse control and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. So, mm. so are you saying then it's more about the experience? It's more about how you respond to something, uh, you know, whether it's not important that you remember it, it's how your is yeah. it is it about and and what about and maybe this is a nice sort of segue into this idea of body memory where where does that come into play or is is every you know uh, 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 phenomenology would teach us that it's it's mind and body it's it's it, we're experiencing mm-hmm. everything it's when I'm looking at you're looking at me on the screen I'm looking at you on the screen and I'm, I'm but I'm also experiencing what's going on behind me I can maybe hear my kids in the basement I can I can hear wind blowing out right it's it's a I mean, that's all a part of it too, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and what people call bodily bodily memories are usually, well, scientifically speaking, these memories are also stored in the brain, but they are Mm. not made explicit. So they are only experienced by using the body. So uh, the way we move and the way we perform skills and the, the way we react emotionally to various situations uh, feels like it is grounded in our body because that's how it is kind of remembered through right. the use of our body. Uh, so that's a totally different memory system that is separate from the hippocampal uh, explicit memory system. But uh, it's it's a, to an advantage to kind of use your body when you try to remember something, isn't it? Yes, because just absolutely. in just just in Norway they tried out the system in one school just learning children math while running up and down a hill hmm. and to me that sounds kind of both a little bit crazy but also very <laughs> sensible because right. you will remember it much better right yeah and uh yeah you will create a bigger system of a more active memory network because all right. these memories are laid down in neuronal networks and these networks can be connected to other networks and bigger networks etc and being able to to form uh, a big and elaborate network with many sensory um, uh, entry points right. uh, is beneficial for uh, for later recall. Are you so so? A little personal story here. I'll see the, the odd photo from time to time. I have a 13 year old son Spencer, and I have a 11 year old daughter uh, Victoria. And every now and then I'll see a photo, and I'll say to Elizabeth, my wife, I have no memory of that I have (laughs) zero recollection of that and then uh, she'll start talking about it in a particular way Um, in fact we were at the Washington Zoo uh, just this past summer in DC and Elizabeth and I had been there with our family five or six years before and we're walking through the zoo and I'm saying and I'm not kidding I was saying if a gun had been put to my head I would have said this emphatically I said no we've never been here before (laughs) <laughs> we have, and you know what it was? We had come in from a different entrance. 
So we had come come in from the north entrance and not the south entrance. (laughs) And soon as we hit this one, there was a bridge. And soon as we hit this bridge, I went, okay, I I now know I've been here before. And it was like something triggered. And then, okay, I remember that restaurant. And I remember going to the washroom over there. And I remember we parked the car. That's fascinating to me, right? So, So it's all there. Right, it's all there yeah. somewhere, yeah. and yeah. It, it's yeah. just. So it's you kind of had to find the right entry point. I had to find the right. Yeah, well, I, that's I, what made that's... me think of it, and and I, I what the, I think the question I want to ask you is, and I've got lots of them, but I think, are you guys worried at all that when I see a photo of my daughter or my son and I say I have no recollection of that, are you worried about that in any way? No, no, no. no not does it at all. does it bother but you I, as a as a as a novelist or as a scientist? I, Oh, sorry. I have the same story. I was kind of I'm, I was in a vacation spot in Greece, and yep. then I was in this small town, and we decided to go up on the mountain and just to explore. And then we went down from the mountain, and we were like, "Wow, it's another village here. It's really nice. <laughs> That's so wow, funny. Wow, it's so fascinating here." And then, oh, it's the same village as. <laughs> <laughs> We just okay. came in from a different then angle. I'm a bit worried. No, <laughs> no, I'm not worried. Did no, that? Did no. it? Did that have anything to do with all the drinking you had been doing the night before? Or? No, <laughs> no. Vacation. So no, no. <laughs> actually no. But uh, it was, uh, of course you won't remember, and so many moments you don't have to remember. You have to just remember the feeling of it, like. Mm. One summer vacation, that is one feeling. And then you have so moments that kind of stands out, right? That are kind of, ah, oh, that happened. Yeah, I know sure. I was happy yeah. then. But mostly it's kind of this, because we have, uh, the memory works in two very uh, conflicting ways. <laughs> the one is uh, memory loves everything that stands out, like everything that is exceptional and mm. very strongly emotional. Hmm. And the other is, it tries to kind of pack everything down like in a suitcase, because our mind isn't, you know, limitless. So you have a kind of, you have to uh, pack it down into a suitcase as tightly as possible, and then it disappears into this feeling of a nice summer. That is just one memory, kind of made up of 20 nice summer days. Right, right. Mm. Like so that it, isn't strange. <laughs> like it's not. So so I guess are there hmm, are there lessons to be learned here? Do, you know, do people you know do people uh, read or takeaways from Adventures in Memory, your new book, are are some of the takeaways that um, I don't know. We want to create better memories. Uh, we want to take more photographs. Uh, we want to spend more time in the moment. You know, these are some of the things that I've been kind of thinking about because, you know, as I, I mean, even as I watched my father, you know, struggling with Parkinson's disease and mm. different types of medication, and he would he would be accessing memories and things and stories that I had never heard about, you know, mm. when he was in the hospital. And then once the medication was taken away, all of that kind of dissipated and disappeared. And, and so it just it just, you know, these experiences remind me, I suppose, of, Wow, at at my age, I got to be way more present than I currently am. Anyway, I'm not sure that's what you guys are trying to advocate here for, but but <laughs> well, I'd love I'd love to hear more yeah. about that. What are some of the lessons? Yeah, we, you know, 
we we want people to kind of cherish the memories that they get to have, but also to 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 simply accept that we won't be able to keep all those mm. precious moments with us, and that is okay. Uh, it is not. While some people do have the fascinating ability to to remember what they have done every day for their whole life, uh, most of us do not, and there is nothing we can do to to make us into these kind of super mnemonic machines or anything. But we do have this fascinating and magical ability to recreate the past. So that, for instance, when my husband tells me that uh, that I had this wonderful experience with him at a restaurant someplace, and I have no recollection of that at all. (laughs) And I I have to kind of simply accept that he he remembers it and I don't, but I can also, I can get this, while he tells me the story, I can kind of, I get to imagine how it was and make right. a kind of right. uh, reconstruction of it. It was kind of an eye-opener for me when Ilva said, and we write this in the book, that kind of, we talk about col- collected memories, like, you know, the collected memory of a summer or just all the times to take the bus to work. Uh, that is a collected memory. Or yeah, I think we call it a cumulative memory. Cumulative book, yeah. memory, yeah, where mm-hmm. you just uh, you just pile yeah. them up together and make one memory out of them. And she talks about how she has such a memory of her hugging her son, hmm. and that is all the time she hugged her son and just sniffed his hair. And I think that is beautiful. That it's. That is, that is, we we kind of strive for that unique exceptional moment that we want to remember, but that co- uh, cumulative, cumulative memory is also uh, worthwhile. You know, that is also something yeah. magical about that. Well, you know, so you... we have to start. And also, I kind of <laughs> to add something that uh, uh, I've been doing yoga for so many years and kind of strive for this presence that they right. always talk about. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah, and kind of mindfulness and all that. And then I learned from this that our kind of, the, the relaxed mode of the brain is to go back and forth, back and forth in time. You just, you remember something, you think of tomorrow, you think of next summer, you go back again. Your, your wildly associative brain is like that when it's relaxing. And I was so relieved to hear that. I was like, oh, no more mindfulness for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do meditative yoga. I totally understand. I can't, yeah. I, I love the phrase wildly associative brain because that's, yeah. it, it just seems like lunacy when you're yeah. trying, you're trying to relax and you're going, I, I, I can't, I, <laughs> How, how have I ever survived as a human being? This is yeah. ridiculous. This is right. It's it's. You cannot stay in the moment. It's so knows. hard. I love your I love your phrase about you know memory loves everything that stands out. And for me, as as a hmm, as I get older, uh, as I read, as I watch more film, as I spend more time with my family, I think that to me is an argument for staying in the moment. If memory loves things that stand out, then you got to make the moment stand out in some significant way, and it might yeah, yeah. just yeah. and it might just mean listening better. It mm-hmm. might mean looking into your son or daughter's eyes when you're talking to them, or holding your wife's hand, or your partner's or whatever. Yeah. Right? And and, and yeah. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Can I ask you guys a little bit about? Um, um, 
you know, you talk about PTSD, you talk about trauma, you talk about, you know, we talked a little bit also before the recorder was on about another favorite film of mine, Memento, you know, and, and, and Guy Pierce's character has this, we think, some sort of traumatic experience which then doesn't allow him to remember anymore. Is there a way to attend to that kind of a thing? Can you, um, you know, through your research, through your writing and so on, your experience can you is there a therapy for that is there a skill you know to 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 i don't know to get people back to where they were does that make any sense at all well uh in the film memento he we don't know if he has a physical damage or if he has experienced some kind of psychogenic amnesia right so um but psychogenic amnesia is very rare and uh, it is not a usual reaction to trauma so what most people experience in the face of trauma is uh, actually uh, very strong memories. So hmm. they remember the traumatic episode uh, painfully well, hmm. and it sticks and comes back at them uh, uninvited, right. uninvited a lot of times during the day, and and by the kind of uh, uh, um, by being exposed to uh, these triggers in the environment. Right. So so. Uh, being able to to uh, to live with that kind of recurring traumatic memories is uh, a, a big challenge for people. And uh, of course, through therapy, one tries to to make people um, kind of uh, soften the emotional impact of the memory to the extent that it is acceptable to to know that they will come back. So. Right. So in the book, we talked to one of the survivors of the Utøya massacre mm. in Norway in uh, 2011. Right. Um, and he told us very vividly how these memories of being shot by the uh, by the terrorists and seeing his friends being shot in front of him, how all these memories were kind of, they were controlling his life. Uh, and that is important to remember because uh, these are symptoms that can that can't be seen on the outside by other people. Right. So, people who are war veterans or have uh, been raped or held at gunpoint or other kinds of traumatic uh, experiences, uh, they have these inner symptoms that are so disturbing, and people uh, don't see that from the outside. Yeah. So they should know what how that affects these people and it's so many for so many reasons mm -hmm. like refugees or you meet me too victims or every, anything and then it affects your memory so bad because you you get uh, not you, you're not concentrated mm. when you're constantly attacked by right. these memories so that will kind of affect everything in your life yeah right? the, it will affect the, the new memories the mm. kind of everyday memory and uh, uh, and also people will try to ward off memory in general too, right. because remembering anything might uh, entail the risk of remembering the trauma well it makes me wonder you know if some things are better forgotten yes of yeah. course it is we are strong advocates of forgetting <laughs> <laughs> although it has to be said that uh remembering the traumatic event that happened to you is important for other reasons of course but but having to remember it so strongly is uh, what we want to, or what one tries to alleviate 
during therapy. Right. But not only that, but Ulva did this experiment where she tried to remember it 100 days in a row. And uh, to me, at least, I don't know for Ulva, but I, <laughs> I think that sounded really, really boring. Like, <laughs> so many things you don't want to remember, like, you know, just brushing your teeth right 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 yes 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 remember right (laughs) yes i was i was i was sort of thinking more about like old painful relationships that's where i was going yeah Yeah, not 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 how many times i brush my teeth a day you know yeah Yes. Both of those. That's right. Yes. Easily forgotten. Easily forgotten. Easily forgotten. Forgetting is a good medicine. (laughs) And it is, uh, I didn't know that when I started working with this book, but it's no kind of either or. It's not either a good memory or a bad memory, kind of people that remember well and people that don't remember. It is all shades and colors of memory. And and there are people that have uh, have what we call highly superior superior autobiographical memory. Memory, yeah. And they, <laughs> and we don't they have that. yeah, yeah, we don't have that. But uh, yeah. they can remember every single day of their right, life right. fifty years back. And then, what researchers found was that they tend to hold grudges. It's interesting. That's pretty <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's not strange. Yeah. If you yeah. remember everything vividly, sure. yes. then someone, you know, kicking you on the, on the leg or something, that will stick really well for a long time. And that is not a good thing. Well, it's interesting, you know, it's a, a interesting, it seems to me it's an interesting comment on behavioral uh, behaviorism, really, too, in a sense, I mean, just psychology and, and forgiveness as well. I mean, these are all other avenues for this conversation, but we uh, we recently got a, a dog, a rescue uh, from Greece. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we live just outside of Toronto. And I would say for the first four to six weeks, her name is Sasha. She's maybe three or four years old. Her memories, I would imagine, of her former life were not allowing her to really step into our home. You know, she Mm. was really timid and skittish and and just didn't want to go downstairs. And still, there's certain things she won't do. And and that's got to be, you know, I mean, that's a defense mechanism, right? I mean, so she's not not holding a grudge against us. She's just being careful. She's just being wise, right? And she's traumatized, probably. And she's probably traumatized as well. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, uh, listen, you know, I, I, we're going to have to wrap it up uh, shortly, uh, um, sadly. And again, I really enjoyed having a conversation with you guys about about this book um you must have come across some pretty uh um interesting people along the way uh one of yeah. my uh, i did an interview a couple um uh, a couple of weeks ago with bridget delaney on her new book well mania and at the end of her book she thanks all the eccentric people that she met along the way and and i wondered i wondered you know other than you know i'm, I'm is is there somebody that stands out for you guys that you can remember uh that 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 touched you in a way um that made you realize how important this project was and why you were moving you know moving forward with it any any anyone stand out yeah well Hilda has already mentioned uh, Arne, our mm-hmm. friend, uh, who couldn't remember his childhood. And uh, and we have mentioned uh, Adrian, uh, the survivor of the yes. Utea shooting, which was really, he really gave so much of his story uh, yeah, that must to show how memory works in the case of trauma. Uh, and also, 
what stood out for me was uh, when we talked to uh, this guy who calls himself Wind, uh, who had suffered from retrograde amnesia at the age of 27. And so he had kind of wiped out all of his memories up until that age. And uh, and while that is so traumatic, just uh, going through that, he was very, he had come to peace with it. And mm. uh, he had, uh, through the help of friends and family, he had kind of reconstructed his past and mm. tried to imagine how these episodes might have been experienced by himself by just listening to them. Uh, but he kind of reminded, he reminded us that while he has this gigantic black hole in his memory, um, we all have kind of these smaller black holes in our memories, even though we don't have retrograde amnesia. So we don't remember everything that has happened to us. We we, we can't have complete control of the past. Mm. What, what, a, what a great way to end our conversation. Thank you, thank you so much to you both, uh, Ilva and Hilda Usby, talking about their, their new book, Adventures in Memory, the Science and Secrets of Remembering and Forgetting. Uh, really appreciate your time today, you two. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Such a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.